Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with our frequent guest and good friend from Time, Inc., Philip Elliott. Phil is Time Magazine's Washington correspondent, a position he's held since 2015. Before that, he spent almost a decade at the Associated Press where he covered politics, campaign finance, education, and the White House. He's covered three presidents, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and now Donald Trump, and more campaigns than he would like to mention. We're talking about the overall midterm campaigns and specifically the campaign activities of President Trump. Phil, uh, you've covered tons of campaigns. So has this campaign been as different for you as it has for others? I, I think so. I've never seen, a, one, I've never seen a midterm with this much enthusiasm and excitement built around it. I've also never seen a campaign that is uh, a midterm campaign that's just so expensive. Um, I mean, we're going to break records here um, for not just money raised, but money spent, outside groups and their impact. It really has been a remarkable um, just dump truck of money that's been dumped on all of this. Um, at the same time, I've never seen a campaign just so mean-spirited, divisive, pessimistic, borderline, it, some people say it's xenophobic, um, racist. I mean, th there's a lot of criticism that can be levied against how this campaign has been fought. Um, and I, I think we're gonna, we should take a minute come Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, when we go to churches on Sunday to think, it, did, did this campaign appeal to our better angels? Did this live up to the ideals of American democracy? And is this what we wanna live through um, as we head into the 2020 campaign, which, uh, um, uh, I, they, they, it's going to start in earnest all, um, almost immediately as the sun comes up Wednesday morning. Looking at past presidential involvement, I've looked at that uh, a bit in, in midterms. And when there is involvement, it's usually uh, running on the president's record on what has been accomplished and saying you don't want to change horses midstream, we, we want to go forward and get that accomplished. I didn't sense that from President Trump. But talk about how he framed the campaign. It'll be interesting to see how he frames this if Republicans don't hold the House. 
I was watching his rally last night in Missouri um, where he was telling his crowd that treat this as though I'm on the ballot, that this is a referendum on me. It is explicitly an up or down vote on whether you believe as voters Donald Trump should continue down this road or not. On a personal level, um, the president really did internalize this. I have some reporting um, with my colleague Brian Bennett um, for a story that we're going to publish. Uh, It's probably by the time this posts, it'll be on the website, that Trump sat down in August um, with his two top political advisors, Bill Stepien, who used to work for uh, Chris Christie, and Johnny DiStefano, who used to work for John Boehner, um, on the first floor of the um, White House in the, um, the map room in August. And they were looking at the schedule about what every day between then, what the last three months of the campaign was going to look like. And Trump looked at it and said, it's not enough. I'm not happy with it. I want to do more. I want to leave nothing on the table. I want this whole campaign to be about me, true to his personality, um, and started trying to shoehorn more events in there. Um, even the draft version that Stepien and Stefano took to the president um, in, in that room um, was already ahead of what uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama had done for their midterms. Trump wanted more. Uh, Trump wanted to be on center stage of this election. And he, he was on center stage. This really was um, a presidential race um, in which the president was not on the ballot. And th- there's risk inherent to this. I mean, you take a look, only twice since the Civil War has the party in the White House not had a shellacking in the first midterms. Um, and that, of course, was FDR during the Depression and George W. Bush after 9-11. I mean, Barack Obama lost 63 seats in 2010. Bill Clinton lost 54 seats. Um, Ronald Reagan lost 26 seats. I mean, right. there, the, 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 the history here is um, persistent. It's not determinative, but it is persistent. And generally, voters, no matter who, which party's in the White House, have a whiplash to what they've just experienced. Um, and generally, there is um, a punishment for the party in the, that has just won the White House um, for not living up to its promises. Donald Trump, however, has time and again proved that history has nothing to do with him and political gravity um, is pliable when it comes to Donald Trump. It seems from an outsider's point of view, outside the beltway, though, that he this is not a different campaign than what he ran in 2016. It's very similar. It's like he went back to the old songbook of campaigns of, of fear and loathing, so to speak. Uh, is that a correct assessment? It, it's not incorrect. The problem that I've spent a lot of time on the road this cycle talking with candidates, and particularly Republican candidates, have complained that they try to, they try to run the Trump playbook. It doesn't work. You cannot Xerox what Donald Trump did and try to put their put his tactics on your race. Um, I, I'm thinking of the Florida Senate race, which is um, very likely to break records for um, campaign spending, um, having a billionaire healthcare exec who can write himself a check for 
um, hundreds of millions of dollars at a time um, helped inflate that right. that race. Um, but I mean, as Donald Trump was there this weekend in Florida, complaining about this caravan of migrants, refugees, really, who are still a thousand miles from the border, trying to come and like take jobs and cost taxpayer money, etc. And next to him was Rick Scott, who's the current governor running for Senate. And Rick Scott's a guy who went out of his way to try to um, win over Hispanic and Latino voters. There are a ton of Puerto Ricans who have moved from the island to Florida and can vote. Rick Scott, when he became governor in 2010, um, went out of his way to learn Spanish. That way he could communicate with all of his constituents. Um, his body man, whom I, I, I was, did a bus tour with Governor Scott, um, his body man's a newly um, Americanized, um, newly um, new citizen from Venezuela who spends his mornings giving him Spanish lessons. Like, you just cannot replicate the Donald Trump um, dark playbook whole cloth and expect to have success. Really, there's only one Donald Trump in American politics, and trying to it, it's it's like that Michael Keaton movie where every time you yourself, <laughs> it becomes a little less off and a li, or a little more off, a little less authentic, um, a little less genuine, and it it corrupts. I mean, it it, it breaks down. It 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 basically um, it it goes rancid with every time you try to clone it, but. That is the tone the president set from the top, and in varying degrees of success, Republican candidates tried to replicate it because that is the that is the stage the president set. That's the table he laid out. Phil, I know you've covered tons of campaigns, both state, local, you're making me feel old, national. No, you're not that old. Just that experience, but this time we've seen report after report of record-breaking early voting. Can you talk to us a little bit about, from your perception out on the road and other places, that that you've seen that change campaigning? Has early voting changed the way people campaign? Early vote really it, it, it contributed to how campaigns are run in a couple different ways. The first of which is we no longer have an election day. We have dozens of election days where campaigns can be won or lost well before November 6th. The first votes in this cycle were cast September 21st in Minnesota, which meant all of the campaigns there had to front load their campaign ads, front load their get out the vote, front load their persuasion into August. Typically, we always think of Labor Day as the start of campaigns, and you can't do that anymore. But in order to do that, you have to raise so much more money because you've got to go up on the air now in July, August, September. You can't get, do as campaigns have done in the past. Maybe like, okay, it's le- the Tuesday after Labor Day. Let's start. Um, <laughs> let's start um, advertising. You have to do that early. Um, the the less um, set your hair on fire um, reading of this is, man, our democracy is a beautiful thing. <laughs> I'm looking at these. I, I'm looking at these numbers, and they they're just through the roof. I'm looking at. I mean, in 2018, the latest numbers from Target Smart is 
36.9 million votes were cast earlier absentee. For comparison, in 2014, the last midterm was 21.2 million. We're just seeing a ton of people showing up early, committing to voting, participating in who represents them, not just in Congress, but their local level. And as much as the, as much as the narrative has been about this blue wave, a pink wave of women who uh, we have a record number of women running, um, there is a pause and a reason why a lot of my Republican friends say, don't start printing a blue wave banner just yet. Target Smart is a Democratic um, affiliated firm, and they they they've made, they've done some of the best early vote analysis on this, um, and they figure out whether um, you're a likely Democratic voter or a likely Republican voter. There is a in there in a Democratic firm's model, more Republicans cast their ballots early this time than Democrats. It's a narrow um, it's a narrow window. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about 100,000 votes, roughly. But as much as the enthusiasm has been on the resistance, the, um, the, the, the women and the minorities and the young people voting, um, we got to take a minute and remember um, that this, this may, conservatives may still have a good night. And the models, voters 18 to 49, are breaking Democrat, um, 50 and above are voting Republican. And I mean, the voters who've cast ballots early, we're talking about 40% of the total electorate is over the age of 65. 30% of it is between the ages of 50 and 64. So that's 70% of the vote um, over the age of 50 that cast their ballot early. And they were very solidly Republican and so while voter turnout may be uh, young vote voters ages 18 to 29 may be all close to double what it was in 2014, we're still only talking about 9% of the vote. So I, I think we just need to take a minute and realize there are structural, structural um, advantages that Republicans may um, have when the first polls close at 6 p.m. on uh, here this election day. Let's talk a little bit, regardless who wins, let's look at Congress between now and January. Uh, if there is a blue wave and let's say the Democrats take over the House, uh, that's a certain dynamic. If the Republicans hold both houses, that's, I would assume, a different dynamic Talk about the agenda of President Trump and the congressional leaders between now and January. So we'll take those separately. Okay. Um, that the Trump agenda, whether he has, whether whatever the Democrats do or don't do on Election Day, those lawmakers don't sit, don't join Congress until January. So you've got a lame duck session where members of Congress, many of whom have just been voted out of office or are retiring, um, still have to govern. And in, in, the, in the middle of all this, the government runs out of money the first week of December. That Congress basically, not basically, they did kick the can down the road to get past the midterm election. 
um, it's not unusual, not illogical um, that they just wanted to be done with this. Um, they have to pass a, a, fun, a funding bill um, basically to keep the lights of government open. The problem with this is the president has signaled and it's, that he's not happy with the last time they did this, a uh, $1.3 trillion spending bill um, over the summer that he had threatened to veto but then was talked out of it at the last minute. Um, <clears throat> you go out in the, in, in the swing districts, a lot of conservatives are very, very angry that the president signed this $1.3 trillion spending bill. It's a, it's a record, and it's still not enough to keep government open. The president has signaled he doesn't want to do it again, and if he's going to do it, he wants wall funding. Under no scenario are Democrats going to vote to keep the government. Most Democrats will not vote to keep the government open if it builds the wall. Um, the president has made the wall a centerpiece of his um, agenda for the white nationalists who support him um, and among those who are experiencing severe economic anxiety. They, they see this as this is why they voted for the president. They're still chanting, build the wall at his rallies. Um, they're convinced this, this caravan of refugees is going to overrun. Um, the president has made it the, the, that caravan the centerpiece of an ad campaign um, that was deemed so racist that no network would run it on their airwaves. Um, but if the president g gives this up, in the opening hours of his re-election bid. That's going to be a problem for him. At the same time, Republicans don't want to spend this money on a wall that no one really thinks is needed from a policy perspective and would be insufficient regardless um, to deal with the crisis of um, what they see as a crisis of immigration. Um, <clears throat> so that sets that up. At the same time, in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, who is very likely to remain um, majority leader, Republicans are widely expected to keep the Senate. Um, I, I, we, we can diagnose why and why that might not be right, but McConnell, whether he keeps the gavel or not, is going to try to ram through as many federal judges as possible regardless. That that is remaking the federal judiciary is one of Mitch McConnell's legacy items. So when they when they transfer it from the McConnell Institute in Kentucky to the McConnell Library and Museum, like judges are going to be front and center of his legacy, um, and they're going to keep pushing that through. In terms of congressional leadership, you're going to see if you're, both parties are going to go through a bit of a reckoning in terms of who they want to be their face. Um, Nancy Pelosi is a force of nature. We have written about her extensively here at the magazine. Um, we gave her a cover earlier this year about the, her persistence. Um, she's going to be a tough figure to dislodge from the top of the Democratic Party if Democrats prevail on election night. Um, her counterpart in the House, Speaker Paul Ryan, uh, decided to just call it quits. He's, right, he's, he's had gone. enough of Washington. He is, he's been a lame duck speaker since earlier this year. To his credit, he still raised about a quarter billion dollars for the party um, on his way out the door, so no one's really spitting on his grave. Um, but it, the race to succeed him is going to be messy. Um, if 
if Democrats don't take the House, um, there will be strong calls for Nancy Pelosi, who was a star of Republican ads, um, to step aside. And really, there's a moment coming to us in Washington, November, December, early January, um, where there could be a new generation of leaders in both parties in the House. Um, and with that, the corresponding um, um, energy and possibility and optimism. Um, but regardless of which party wins or loses, Congress is going to be incredibly different when it comes back in January. I mean, 23 Democrats decided not to... 23 Democrats will... Current incumbent Democrats will not be in the House. 50 incumbent um, Republicans in the House will not be in the House next year. It's an incredibly high... We, we call it the casualty list. So that's I mean, 75 out of 435. Do the math. That's a significant number. Yeah, so 23 Democrats, 50 Republicans. Uh, that's 83 of 435 are going to definitely be brand new members. Um, not That doesn't even take into account incumbents who are running for re-election come up short. So the Congress is going to be a much different animal um, when, when we come back in January. At the same time, depending on which party has majority, there's a ton of lawmakers and a, a ton of House Democrats who've never had the majority. They have no muscle memory when it comes to how to govern, and that is going to be a fascinating story to watch. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Another fascinating story, again, regardless of the outcome, after midterms, there are usually cabinet shifts. Uh, I've read reports that Jeff Sessions thinks he might be fired as, as soon as the day after the midterms. Rod Rosenstein uh, following closely. Uh, Kelly, obviously, we've talked about before. Uh, as chief of staff, but other cabinet people, Homeland Security and others. Tell us what you know and what you can about what you anticipate from the White House after this midterm. So I, I think the all signs point to Jeff Sessions being shown the door. There's just an incredible unhappiness with 
him, he has served as a proxy for the Bob Mueller investigation. And if if the president, there have been many there have been many presidents who don't like their attorney general, but they're they're typically presidents are confined by the norms of the office. Donald Trump is not. Um, there there's also a frustration. Keep an eye on Ryan Zinke. He is very close to Donald Trump Jr. He's the Interior Secretary, but he's got boatloads of ethics investigations hanging over his head. Um, and as much as the conservatives in the administration like him, um, it's not clear that the personal affinity is worth the political headache um, hanging over him. Um, I mean, looking down down the the roster here, I mean. Homeland Security Chief uh, Chris Nielsen is a close ally of Chief of Staff John Kelly, but the president is very unhappy with what he sees as a weak border enforcement. Um, it's actually no, it's actually just, it's right on par with where things normally are. These things come in cycles. Migrants move during certain times of the year. They don't move at other times, and the president had seen his, the typical... Um, drop off in border crossings as success when really it's like if you look at any calendar and historical models it just it's always going to drop off during <laughs> certain months right um, he he doesn't quite understand that this is the way um, this goes we've al- we've already seen Nikki Haley announce she's stepping down as UN ambassador we may end up with um, the State Department spokeswoman Heather Newark um, in there she's a former Fox host um, so we will see her, perhaps, all reporting indicates she's going to get the new um, UN ambassador job. Not clear that it'll be part of the cabinet anymore. Um, National Security Advisor John Bolton hates the UN, um, a position he, uh, he used to be the um, UN ambassador on a recess appointment during George W. Bush. Um, he would love to see the UN just downgraded as perhaps just a regular um, sub-cabinet post. Um, and then you just look around. I mean, there's there's a lot of unhappiness um, um, at what it, what they're watching. I mean, Wilbur Ross, who's over at Commerce, um, <clears throat> this is the tr- he has lost the president's trust mm-hmm. um, and confidence. He may decide he you know at, as a billionaire he doesn't really need the um, the headache of serving in the administration. Sonny Perdue at Agriculture has been a success. But he's constantly running his head against the wall when it comes to these um, um, tariffs and this trade war. Um, both men are—they don't need this job, and that's—and then finally, Jim Mattis at the Pentagon. Um, he is—I uh, think—I think he may have signaled um, just how little he needs needs this job when he when the Pentagon rejected the president's request for up to 15,000 troops um, to confront 5,000 um, r- refugees fleeing by foot coming to the U.S.-Mexican border, some of them barefoot, many of them um, malnourished, seeking asylum. With all of those changes, um I want to, in our last few minutes that we have together, I want to talk about presidential temperament and specifically Trump's temperament. You know, if he loses or it's perceived that he loses in this midterm, 
I can see him being the pouty child uh, uh, image. If he wins, I can see him being the gloating gladiator. Uh, how much does his temperament, uh, how important is that in all of these different changes that we've been talking about? I mean, the president is client number one um, for all of this, that he is, he and he alone can control this. Um, he likes that he's at the center of every decision and all the attention's on him. Um, if voters, it, it'll be interesting to see how he deals with what happens and if he learns any lessons here. That if he wins, you could pos- you can definitely see a scenario where he just doubles down and says, you know what, I understand America better than anyone, which may be the case, and he is going to continue to ignore norms of the office um, and continue to play to his hardcore base. If he loses, there is a scenario where, whereby White House aides have started um, having these conversations where the pre- where the the lesson learned is not enough Republicans behaved like Trump. That the answer is to again double down on uh. Trump's instincts and behave like Trump. And the answer is not to reconsider Trumpism, but to learn Trumpism. There's there's a I mean it's it, it's the question that we saw um, in in post Lenin Soviet Union where everyone, in order to be in good standing in the party, you had to be more Lenin than Lenin. There's a scenario by which Trump's Republican Party has to reconsider um, how, to be, how to be more Trump than Trump, how to be more Catholic than the Pope. Uh, and that is going to be a decision that not just the White House is going to have to confront, but Congress, where... As much as the president, as much power as the American system affords the executive branch, spending has to start in the House. Foreign policy typically has to be ratified um, in Congress. The unilateral executive can only do so much to change America, and a lot of the president's agenda will fall to not just Mitch McConnell and whoever becomes Speaker of the House, but to committee chairs who really have an ability to set the agenda through um, laws, through executive branch nominations, um, through just the routine, um, the road to act of governing that is not sexy, but really can gum up um, a president's agenda if there's not sufficient um, legwork put in and preparation um, shown. Um, to to really advance this, and almost immediately, the pres I mean the president has been in reelect mode. Um, he's been raising an, an obscene amount of money, uh, and I say that with respect right. um, for a, a president who's not in cycle. Um, that all goes into overdrive, and um, the the reelect starts on Wednesday, and we we were talking about cabinet level. Um, changes, you're going to see much of the president's brain trust either um, in terms of official post or in de facto um, prioritization 
um, shift to reelect mode um, pretty in pretty fast order before the end of the year. We just have a minute or two left now. I just want to ask you one quick question. Uh, at Monday night's rally, Sean Hannity, Judge Janine Perot from Fox, went on the stage to make statements on behalf of the president. As a journalist, how do you feel about that? I, I have never felt at I, I have never felt that the, any president I've covered I've covered three now um, would ever think I, as an individual, would have any ability to shape what their supporters do electorally. Um, it, it, it speaks to the close relationship that the president has with Fox News, with Sean Hannity in particular, um, the, the running joke inside the West Wing among those who let themselves have some gallows humor is that if Justice Bader Ginsburg were to retire, we'd end up with Judge Janine um, on, on the Supreme Court as a nominee. Um, he's just very close to these individuals at that network. It's no secret that <clears throat> he spends a lot of his time watching um, reruns of the shows or on, on he, he's very excited about what, what we would call a DVR. It's uh, it's obviously <laughs> modified. When, right. when, you, when you're the president, you have some really awesome technology. Right. Um, but in his private office next to the Oval, um, he people who go in and meet with him on the record or off the record are often treated to um, clips from some of his favorite um, advisors slash shows on Fox News um, with clips teed up at certain sound bites where he will... <laughs> It, it's happened. I mean, it's it's he he rather than answer questions, he'll find the clip he likes and play the clip um, from a Fox News host to answer a question about how he's governing and what his priorities are and why he's thinking a certain way. Um, you know, it, it's it's really unfortunate for my friends who are objective journalists at Fox News um, who just want to get the story right. Um, to have to deal with the sideshow of their primetime lineup, which is boosterism at 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 the worst, um, or boosterism at the best, and just state propaganda at the worst. It's it really is unfortunate um, that the journalism at Fox News has to deal with that headache of unofficial presidential advisors getting an air of airtime every night. Um, it, it really. At the same time, you, you you have to Rick. I have to acknowledge they have they're they're crushing it in the ratings. That Americans want that brand of infotainment um, every night. They are not tuning into um, objective reporting um, on CNN. They're not turn, tuning in uh, to my friends at MSNBC for their analysis. They they just want the red meat. Um, uh, victimization, punching back of the, the the types of hosts that Fox News has used so successfully to become the high, the high, most watched um, cable network in America, and the symbiosis is two way in that the former uh, executive at Fox News, Bill Shine now has an office on the first floor of the West Wing and is the White House communications advisor and a senior advisor. <clears throat> there is the, 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 the complete um, symbiosis of Fox News in this presidency 
Um, it, it's it's absolutely complete, um, and we just have to recognize that um, as, as much as you and I, um, as much time as we, you more than I, but as, as the time we spent in Scripps Hall together, right. um, you teaching me studying journalism, journalism and ethics and law and just professional practices that that is now an ideal and it's not a real when it comes to certain corners of this profession uh in washington at this at this hour well we're talking on the afternoon of election day i know you've got a huge evening ahead of you uh, keep it real out there, will you? And uh, we'll get together in a couple of weeks and uh, do a postmortem, however this comes out. Fantastic. I, like, I look forward to it, Tom. Today, we've been talking with Time Inc.'s Washington correspondent, Phil Elliott, about the midterm election campaigns and President Trump's involvement. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. <laughs>